Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 27. Um, you know, as we've been going through, and I, you know, one of my favorite things in, is going through the Old Testament. I, I love teaching the New Testament. And I really love teaching the Old Testament because of all the symbols and the types and the everything that points to Jesus. So you can practically turn every page and there's something that points to Jesus. And I, you just think how the Lord was really trying to prepare his people, the Jews, to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And, and, and so the scriptures, I mean, he just jumps out uh, in the scriptures. The spirit reveals all kinds of things. Now, as we've been going through this, uh, I read chapter 27, if you were here uh, before worship began, and, and it seems maybe a little bit mundane or just kind of really, really detailed. And you wonder, you know, is it all that important? Well, I want something, I want you to keep something in mind. What we're reading this morning, what we're studying this morning, uh, nothing in God's word is just ornamental. Uh, what I mean is it's not just there because, you know, God said, well, I think I just want to put that in there, you know, as part of the scriptures, you know. Uh, nothing in God's economy is empty ceremony. There's a reason and a purpose behind all of it. Now, we may not understand uh, all that that's, you know, all the purposes or all the pictures, the types. I'm going to try to point some out this morning, but we may not understand all of them, uh, and, but they're there. And also, uh, in many cases, there's multiple symbols and uh, multiple types that, we'll, that we see that are recorded for us. And in, in a lot of cases, that, that is the case. There's a, there's a picture that's painted of something, but it also reveals something else. And so I just want you to know that as we go through this, it's, it's not just, I'm not just reading it for the sake of reading it. There's, there's important things for us to learn in there. As I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament is filled with symbols and types. And so when I say type, sometimes people, I wonder what he's talking about. You know, talk about the Passover lamb, for example. I say that's a type of Christ and go, what do you mean a type of Christ? Well, when I'm referring to symbols and types, what do I mean? First of all, a symbol indicates a present truth. One of the things that as we go through and we're reading the descriptions of the tabernacle and the court and the, the altar, there actually is in reality the real thing up in heaven. The book of Hebrews tells us that these are just a shadow and a copy of what is, it actually exists in heaven to this day, right now. And so symbols indicate a present truth. And in this case, in most cases, as we'll look at this morning, it's revealing uh, it, things about heaven to us. A type points to a future spiritual reality. Uh, a lot of the types that we point to in, in this chapter for, in particular will be Jesus Christ and his ministry on earth and his ministry, of course, now in heaven. Uh, the church. It'll, it'll, things are a type of the church. Also the believer's life in Christ, which I think chapter 27 deals a lot with, I think, the believer's life in Christ, as we'll be, we'll be, uh, I'll be sharing with that, uh, about that later on. So when I mention the symbols, hopefully you know what I'm talking about. It's a reality that's in heaven right now, in this case heaven. A type points to something in the future. Uh, and so, not our future necessarily, but in the future from the people that are reading it there in the Old Testament. So let's begin here with verse 1 of chapter 27. We're going to be speaking about the brazen altar. Verse 1, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square 
and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horn shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, uh, you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. So here's the pattern that Moses was to give to the, to the uh, certain artisans uh, of how to build the brazen altar that the Lord was commanding them to build. An altar, the word actually, it's a noun, but it's formed from a verb, and the verb means to slaughter an animal. And so the, this altar was a place where sacrifice, where an animal was sacrificed. It's a place of sacrifice. And you'll notice that it was to be made of acacia wood, which a few chapters earlier we pointed out that acacia wood is a, is a type, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. Um, but it's overlaid with bronze. Bronze is an alloy of copper and a tin in most cases, probably in those days it was. It's malleable. In other words, you can, you can beat it into thin sheets. It has a very high melting point. Uh, what I found out was it was 1,742 degrees Fahrenheit. So in other words, it can withstand tremendous heat. And being an altar, a brazen altar with a fire burning on it, it would need to, to, uh, to withstand heat. Um, so why did God pick bronze? Well, because it's good for burning? No, 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 no. Well, that's probably part of it. But it's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of the fire of judgment, which is revealed throughout scriptures. So the dimensions of this altar was to be five cubits in length, which is about seven and a half feet long, uh, and seven and a half feet wide, so it was square. Its height was three cubits, which would be about four and a half feet tall. Now, the symbology, the symbol, what is it a symbol of? It's a symbol of the altar that actually in reality is in heaven even today. In fact, John and his, uh, his vision that he received on the island of Patmos in Revelation 6, 9, he says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So he saw a vision of the altar in heaven, the real deal. In Revelation 6, uh, excuse me, 9, verse 13, it says, then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. So even that this altar, even in heaven, has four horns on it. So it's a symbol of the altar in heaven. It's also a type. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, it's speaking to believers, and it says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And if you go through that chapter, it's all speaking about Jesus Christ. He is our altar. In fact, he's not only the altar, but he's also the sacrifice on the altar. He's not even the altar and the sacrifice on the altar. He's the high priest giving the sacrifice or performing the sacrifice on the altar. So it's amazing. It all points to Jesus. Well, what's interesting here was this altar was to have a grate about midway up the altar from the inside. And I was thinking, well, what's, what's the purpose behind that? And from a practical standpoint, 
we know later on that there's going to be daily sacrifices. It's going to be constantly on fire. It's constantly burning. And so maybe that, that was for uh, ventilation, right, to get the flames nice and hot so that they would completely burn the sacrifice on the altar. Also probably for the ashes to fall as it would be continually being used. The daily sacrifice should be, or I should say the daily sacrifice, uh, or the picture I should say of the daily sacrifice should be the norm for the for the follower of Christ, for, uh, for you and I. I think it pictures what takes place in our lives. In Hebrews 13, verse 15, we're told, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. When you came in here this morning, I don't know, you know, some people, they, they, they come to a church and they go, well, I didn't like the worship. Or they go, wow, I, was really, I really like the worship. It's blessed. It sounded really good or didn't sound really good or whatever. And people tend to judge worship as if it was a performance. And unfortunately, some churches do that. Their worship is a performance. I don't know if you notice, it's not a performance here. <laughs> um, the purpose for worship, it's to offer our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. That's what we're doing here. Hopefully that's what's happening in every church, but that's what we're doing here. It's a sacrifice. And you know, sometimes you come in in the mornings and you've, maybe you've had a fight with your wife or your husband or things are just not going all that well and you just don't feel like worshiping. Well, that's, that's when it's time to sacrifice and just offer that worship anyways. Your flesh may not want to do it. Your flesh may be screaming, don't do it. You know, just sit there, have a scowl. But if you just start worshiping, your heart will follow. I guarantee it. It happens every time. So just encourage you in worship. In Romans 12.1, we're told, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When I think of a living sacrifice, it's something that's continually being sacrificed. You might say, well, you know, one day I sacrificed for the Lord. I did, you know, no, we're, we're to daily offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Our life should be a living sacrifice constantly. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Are you being renewed day by day in your walk with the Lord as you're growing, as you're being stretched? None of us like being stretched, but that's how we grow. Stretching, uh, growing in our faith. Are you being renewed day by day? Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. So Paul totally understood about the daily sacrifices. He died daily. So this aspect of this raised great, uh, it could be a type of the life of the believer in Christ, and I think it is. I think, there's, I think we can see some, some uh, symbolism or some pictures there. Interesting, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, this altar was to be constructed with four horns. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, some people have said that the four corners, the four horns are pointing to the four corners of the earth, picturing or kind of representing how this sacrifice would be all-encompassing for the all the inhabitants of the world. Um, and I think there's some support for that. 1 John 2, 2, we're told, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So these horns going out in these different directions, that, that definitely could be what that is uh, a symbol of. 
or a, a type or a picture. It could also be, and I've heard this said, that it was a place to tie the sacrifice to. That's an interesting concept. And you know what? It's backed up in Scripture too. In Psalm 118, 27, it says, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So yeah, I don't know the answer, but there's some good support for both possibilities, and maybe it is both, both things. Interestingly, and I'm just going to read this to you, according to almost universal custom in the ancient world, a religious altar was a place of sanctuary against justice or vengeance. An accused man might find safety if he could flee to an altar before he was apprehended. And we see this in the Old Testament. Adonijah was a man during the time of uh, days of, of David and Solomon. He took hold of the horns of the altar. And I'm going to read this to you. It's in 1 Kings 1. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it. Verses 50 to 53. It says, Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Now I don't know if that means that Adonijah was innocent. I don't think he was totally innocent in, in the things that were taking place at that time. But Solomon extended mercy. Mercy to him. He was just clinging to that altar. He didn't want it to the horns of the altar. didn't want to be killed. Now, Another chapter later in 1 Kings chapter 2, there was another guy by the name of Joab that did the same thing. And it says here in chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, it says, Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. Absalom was David's son who rebelled against King David. So, so Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. The same thing Adonijah did. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. Two outcomes. Two different people doing the same thing, hanging and clinging to the altar. Two different outcomes. Adonijah was spared. Joab was killed. You see, grabbing the hold of the horns of the altar didn't necessarily protect the guilty. In fact, a few chapters earlier in Exodus 21, verse 14, it says, But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. If he's guilty and he's hanging on to that altar, he's, he's going to die no matter what. Well, Adonijah's life was spared by Solomon. Joab's life was not spared by Solomon. If, if you read later on in that chapter, it's because he murdered uh, different people in cold blood. And so he was guilty. So there are some examples in the Old Testament of people grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. There's an allusion to it in the New Testament as well. It's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It talks about those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now that fleeing, uh, fleeing for refuge, that is an illusion, or it's, it's speak, it goes back to the refuge cities that were in Numbers chapter 35. That's a fascinating study in and of itself. 
But that laying hold of the hope set before us, I think that's like grabbing onto the horns of the altar. For you and I, I think it's grabbing onto the cross of Christ. Now there's a little bit of a difference between what took place in the Old Testament and what's taking place grabbing onto the cross. You see, I am guilty, and so are you, and we deserve death. But I cling to the cross of Christ, and Christ in his mercy and his grace spares me because of his great love for us. And all I can do, I'm guilty, I deserve death, but all I can do is cling to that cross of Christ and beg for his mercy. That's why I think keeping the cross central, not the cross itself. It's funny, when, when we first started our fellowship for many, many years, we just had the Calvary Chapel dove. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, a, it's a kind of the symbol of the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Um, we had the Calvary Chapel dove everywhere, and there was this elderly lady that was attending, and she said, you guys need a cross. And I said, well, yeah, I agree with you, you know. And she said, I'll buy it. I'll pay for it if you'll get a cross. So we ended up, uh, my brother-in-law constructed a back here that's it right there <laughs> constructed that one and and uh, we put it up and then she was very happy <laughs> but uh, you know it's not that we make the cross an icon or something that we worship the cross it's what the symbolism what the cross represents and that's Christ's sacrifice for our sins that's what we worship that's what we that's what should be central in our life what it represents and that's why I think keeping the cross central is so important it was important to Paul in Galatians 6, verse 14, it says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all that, that's the central thing. It should be the central thing. So in a sense, I think you and I are kind of like clinging to the horns of the altar, although for us it's the cross of Christ. By the way, before we move on, because we're going to move on to the court of the tabernacle, my wife sent me an article, and uh, I want to read this to you. Now this occurred in November of last year, 2018, around the time of, of Hanukkah, which is a Jewish celebration says, on the last day of Hanukkah, which literally means dedication, a new altar built in accordance with all the Jewish laws pertaining to the temple vessels and infrastructure was unveiled and nominal, nominally dedicated for use in the yet-to-be third temple by several temple activist organizations. The initiative came from Professor Hillel Weiss, a hard-right political activist and temple activist who established a nonprofit organization called the Temple in Zion and raised some 40,000 shekels for the building of the altar. The project was also backed by the Committee of Temple Organizations, an umbrella group for temple activist groups. The altar is built out of bricks, over a wooden frame and specifically not of stone since Jewish law requires that the temple and its various structures not be made out of stone that was hewn by iron implements. The altar itself weighs some four and a half tons and the ramp another two tons. It was built in the, built in the El Cana uh, settlement in the Western Samaria district by carpenters, bricklayers and other construction specialists. Organizers intended that a sheep to, was to be slaughtered during the dedication ceremony and the various rituals, including burning some of its limbs and innards on the altar, uh, was to be performed. However, Weiss said objections were raised by the Jerusalem Municipal Authority's legal department. Instead, 
A sheep was slaughtered earlier this week in an abattoir, whatever that is, and just one of its front legs was burned on the altar in a practical, excuse me, in a practice sacrificial exercise. Although the Passover and daily sacrifices do not require a full temple, they must be done on an altar built according to the requirements of Jewish law and placed at the appropriate spot on the temple mount, believed to be several meters east of the Islamic dome of the rock shrine. I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps when I think about it. Because here's a group of people, they already, they want to get the third temple in place. And uh, if you know prophecy, if you go into, uh, I think it's in Second Thessalonians and uh, definitely in Revelation, uh, there speaks about the Antichrist standing up in the temple midway through the tribulation of three and a half years, and he's going to break his covenant with Israel and he's going to proclaim that he's God in the temple. And right now there's not a temple. So the Jewish people, they are not, not, they're not anxious for the Antichrist, but they, are, they want that third temple. Uh, so that they can start worshiping and, 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 and having their blood sacrifices like in the Old Testament, like they did before. And all they need is a place on the Temple Mount. And you go, well, okay, so what's going what's gonna to precipitate that? Well, I have no idea. But something's going to happen to allow the Jews to end up putting a temple on there where the Muslim world's not going to go bonkers about it. Um, it's possible, you know, you, you uh, look at what's going on in Syria. You got President Putin there. He's the king of the north. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel 38, 39 about the king of the north uh, allying himself with uh, Syria and Persia, which is Iran, and some other nations, I think Turkey and a few other nations. And they invade Israel. And, uh, and did you know that the United Nations is prophesied in the Bible? They are. Because when this battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place, it says that the other nations that are not attacking, they say, uh, are you attacking Israel? Or are you attacking this land? And basically, they make a statement. They don't do anything. So it's got to be the United Nations because that's what they do. They make statements, and that's it. They, they, they condemn things. Uh, usually, it's Israel, but they condemn things. Anyways, um, so uh, yeah. So anyways, what would take place? Could it be some invasion that's coming up very soon on the horizon? It could be. This is what gives me the goosebumps. I know, and I, I believe scripture fully supports that the rapture of the church is going to occur prior to the beginning of the tribulation. And, uh, and so if at some point, either before the tribulation or right at the start of the tribulation, at some point there's going to, that temple is going to be built. And these guys are getting ready for it. In fact, they already have a high priest ready to perform the sacrifices once they have their temple in place. And, uh, and so if that's on the near horizon, and I believe it is, how much sooner is the rapture of the church? So, man, we should be excited about that. Anyways, we're not here to do a prophecy uh, sermon, but let's move on here. Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 27. Now we'll look at the court of the tabernacle. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There should be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen. 100 cubits long for one side, and its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their band shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. 
The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits, made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. So we have this courtyard surrounding the brazen altar and the tabernacle. We're told it's 100 cubits long, so it would be approximately 150 feet long. 50 cubits wide, which would be approximately 75 feet wide. So you kind of get an idea in your head. In fact, that is a, a, a replica in Israel that you can go to if it's a Timna Park uh, uh, tabernacle replica that you can go and you can actually visit and, and check it out. But that's what those pictures are from. So it had hangings or what we would call curtains and you can see them on the picture um, all around the perimeter of this temple courtyard and it was supported by bronze pillars and with bronze sockets and had silver bands and silver rings. Now that white, of course if you go in the Bible, white is a picture of purity. There's a picture of sanctification. It's the bronze I mentioned earlier is a picture of judgment. Silver, we learned last week, was a picture of redemption. Uh, and so uh, you have all these things that, that mean something, right? So what's the sim symbolism or the symbol, the reality that occurs right now? In Revelation 15 verse 5, John said this. It says, after these things I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So John saw the tabernacle in heaven, the real deal in heaven. He doesn't mention the court of the tabernacle. In fact, I couldn't find that in the prophecy or, or anywhere in there. So I'm wondering if maybe, and this is just my thinking, that the court is a symbol of heaven itself and the tabernacle's in the center of that. Could be, could not be. That's what I think the symbolism is, though. It's also a type. And I believe that courtyard is a type or a picture of the believer's life in Christ. You see, if you think about it, your and my sins have been judged in Jesus Christ, represented by those bronze pillars and sockets. The sockets are like a foundation for the pillars. We have been redeemed by his shed blood, and that's the picture of redemption. We see the silver bands and the rings. And we are sanctified by his sacrifice, and that's pictured in those white curtains. In fact, if you think about it, those curtains, they're supported by the bronze pillars and the silver bands. Because our sanctification, we don't stand sanctified on our own. We only are sanctified through Christ's sacrifice for our sins and his redemption by his blood. So I think it's a perfect picture of the believer's life in Christ. And it fits too because there's only one entrance to the court. That entrance is Jesus Christ. There's only one way to enter into a relationship with, Jesus, or with God and that's through Jesus Christ. And so this entrance to this court was a screen 20 cubits long, which would be about 30 feet. It says it was woven of blue purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. 
So we've got these different colors. We've got blue, and I mentioned a couple weeks ago, blue is a picture of deity. We have purple, which is a picture of majesty. We have scarlet, which is the picture, of course, of blood, of the sacrifice, and white linen, the picture of righteous humanity. This all points to Jesus Christ. The four pillars with the four sockets, I think possibly it's the four gospels that, are, that support, that point to Jesus or, or, or reveal Jesus to us. The placement is significant. You think about it with the believer's life in Christ. You have to enter through the gate. You, have to, you can't enter into a relationship apart from Jesus Christ. You have to go through Jesus Christ. You approach the brazen altar, which, of course, Jesus Christ sacrificed for our sins. And then you enter the holy place. Uh, the tabernacle and everything inside is, is, points to Jesus Christ. You can't enter any other way. There's no other entrance to that courtyard but through the main gate, which is a picture of Christ. And you can't enter the tabernacle without the blood of a sacrifice on the burnt on the altar. Again, it all points to Jesus. There's many allusions to the court of the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament. In fact, we sang about it this morning. Here's just a few. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We sang that, didn't we? It sounded familiar. Psalm 92, 13, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Psalm 96, verse 8, give, the Lord, uh, give to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering, come into his courts. Psalms 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. That's just a few. There's tons of passages to the psalmist, entering and dwelling in the, in, the, in, the, in the courtyard of the tabernacle, in the courtyard of the Lord, it was a desirable place to be. Hopefully you feel that way about your relationship with the Lord. Now earlier I mentioned that this is a type of the believer's life in Christ. Hopefully maybe you see that. Um, but listen, not only is it a barrier that, that surrounding the white linen, not only is it a barrier to keep people from going in except through the gate, but in a sense, it's a boundary for those inside the courtyard, if you think about it. What's interesting, those curtains are not electrified with, uh, it's not an electric fence like running along there to keep livestock out or anything like that, you know? I've had interactions with electrified fences. They're not fun. There's no razor wire on the top, you know, no serpentine stuff. Uh, there's no uh, moat surrounding it with alligators, you know, certain countries, they keep people in, right? Uh, that's what they try to do. Um, you don't see that there. And yet I do believe it's a boundary. It represents a boundary. What keeps you and I within our relationship with Jesus Christ? It's the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, ready to club us over the head every time we, we wander. It's the love of Christ that compels us. That's what keeps us in fellowship with us. And God's word does reveal the boundaries of what that life in Christ is. There's a warning in Proverbs 22, verse 28. It says, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Today, you see people moving the landmarks. Landmarks are being moved constantly in our culture right now. Hosea 5.10 says, The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Don't, don't move the boundaries. The boundaries are there. 
Paul puts it this way, 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, hold fast the pattern, pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then Jude says this, chapter 1 verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You want to stay within that boundaries of, of that relationship with the Lord. That's, we read the word. That's, that's why we read the word. The word reveals God's, how God wants us, you know, what he wants us to do, how we stay in that boundaries. Under the old covenant, which the Old Testament is all about the old covenant, only a few priests could minister within that tabernacle. Under the new covenant, the Bible says you and I, we are a royal priesthood. We're all priests. We can not only enter that courtyard, that fellowship with God, but we can enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. Not only that, but that veil that we talked about earlier when we, were, when we were studying the tabernacle, the veil has been torn away in Christ Jesus, and now you and I, we can approach the throne of mercy and grace. Man, it's, we have such a blessing, and it's all because of Christ and his sacrifice for us. One last thing to mention. The height, I think, is significant. The height of those curtains was uh, seven and a half feet. I won't do the cubits, but seven and a half feet. The altar on the inside was about four and a half cubits. And if you recall, the walls of the tabernacle itself were 10 cubits, excuse me, four and a half feet. The walls of the tabernacle itself equaled about 15 feet. So the view that you're seeing in the picture right there is I, I, there's hills all around. So I think they're on an on a elevated spot looking down in because they, they wanted to get the picture, you know, so you could see the articles in there. But if you think about it, if you're standing next to the courtyard of this tabernacle, seven and a half feet, the altar is down below that, right? It's four and a half feet. So you wouldn't see the altar. You wouldn't see the entire tabernacle. You would just see the top half of it. And all you would see was the covering of badger skins. In fact, you'd look at it, you go, that just looks like any other Bedouin tent. I mean, what's the, di what's the deal? There's nothing special. I don't see anything special about that. And again, I think it points back to the believer's life in Christ. And it also points to Jesus. Because from the outside, Jesus looked like any other Judean man. He didn't walk around with this little halo. You know, he wasn't like the saint. I watched the saint last night before I went to bed, you know, the Simon Templar, and they put the saint. You know, Jesus didn't walk around with a halo. He didn't have this glowing white in his background, you know, wherever he was. All the paintings showed that way, but he looked like any other Judean man. In fact, in Matthew 13, verse 55, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish leaders, they said, is not this, or excuse me, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? They were looking at him and going, man, we know this guy. He's the Messiah? He, how can he be the Messiah? He looks like anybody else. And from the outside, the believer's life in Christ doesn't look like much to an unbeliever. And you guys know that. You talk to your believing or your unbelieving family members or friends, and they think you're nuts. They go, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why you're following Christ. What's, what's the deal with that? What's the benefit? You know, I don't see anything about that. They, it doesn't make sense to them. All they see is what they see on the outside. It's not until you enter into that relationship, you enter into the believer's life, the courtyard, that's when you see the altar. That's when you appreciate the sacrifice. That's when you, you see every the glory inside the tabernacle. But from the outside, pff, big deal. You go to church, who cares, you know? 
Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And cling to the cross, don't let go of it. 2 Corinthians 4 verses three through four, Paul said this, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So if you struggle with your, your believer, your unbelieving friends or something, you're trying to share them about your relationship in Christ, and they just like, they don't, they just, they don't get it. It, it. it makes sense, right? They can't see it not until they enter into that relationship. You've talked to, maybe you've talked to, I've talked to people that have said, you know, I read the Bible and, and it just doesn't make sense until I came to a relationship with the Lord and then, boom, man, now it makes sense. It's because now the, the scales are removed and the Holy Spirit starts speaking to their hearts. I don't have this verse up here, but I want to read this to you. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. So it's the coming of the lawless one, that's speaking of the Antichrist that I mentioned earlier, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How do we know that the that we're getting close to the last days. There's gonna be a strong delusion. I wanna read this to you, it's another article. DC Comics is introducing its newest superhero, Jesus Christ, adapted from the most popular book in, the history, in history and with its own twist. The new series titled The Second Coming is set to debut in March. The series written by Mark Russell and illustrated by Richard Pace has already been labeled by some Christians as blasphemous, and I'd be one Christian that would be labeling it. According to comic book resources, Russell mixed in his own idea of Christianity in the animated work by claiming that Jesus needed to return to earth to learn how to become the true Messiah from a Superman-like character called Sun Man. Witness, this is quoting from it, witness the, re the return of Jesus Christ as he is sent on a most holy mission by God to learn what it takes to be the true Messiah of mankind by becoming roommates with the world's favorite savior, the all-powerful superhero Sun Man, the last son of Crispex. But when Christ returns to earth, he's shocked to discover what has become of his gospel, and now he aims to set the record straight, the comic uh, description reads. In a past interview with Bleeding Cool, Russell explained that the series centers on the fact that God was so upset with Jesus' performance the first time he came to earth, since he was arrested so soon and crucified shortly after, that he has kept him locked up since then. When the fictional version of, God's, of God sees Sun Man, he tells the comic Jesus, that's what I wanted for you. He sends Jesus down to learn from this superhero and they end up learning from uh, and they end up learning from each other Russell added they learn the limitations of each other's approach to the world and its promise and its problems now for you and I we go you know what I wouldn't even let's blasphemy I wouldn't even you know read that it's no big deal a lot of kids do though and yeah, the, the, they know it's a comic strip and everything, but you know what? It, it all goes in. It all goes in and, and feeds. And, and, and the, the Bible says in the last days, there's going to be a tremendous deception. 
is taking place. And I think this is just, just part of it. Um, it's interesting, of course, I, I, that gutless guy probably wouldn't do an article on Mohammed, you know, come, it wouldn't be the same, you wouldn't do the same comic strip with Mohammed because then he'd have a fatwa. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, we don't do fatwas, right? So we weren't, you know, he's, he's nobody's going to, you know, put a contract out on him because of that. Um, and that's the way it is, right? We can mock Christianity as much as you want. Just don't mock anybody else, but you can mock Christians. We're fair game. Anyways, I'm getting off my soapbox with that. But. <laughs> but it just adds to the adds to the confusion and the and the, the the people look at the life in Christ and it just doesn't make sense to them. Well, let's go on here. Verse 19, the utensils. It says all the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So does that mean all the utensils just to the altar? It sounds like it's all the utensils, period. Bronze, of course, we mentioned pointing to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But I think it's significant that it says everything, all those tools shall be bronze. Because in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, um, in fact, I think I read that earlier. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, the center, center focus. Let's move on here. The oil for the lampstand, verses 20 and 21. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Oil in the Bible is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You see it throughout all throughout scriptures. Now what's interesting about the oil in this situation, in this tabernacle, was evidently the lampstand in the tabernacle would eventually run out of olive oil. You say, well, it's supposed to burn continually. Well, we have some scriptures that talks about it. I'll give you one for example. In Exodus 30, verse 8, it says, And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, so he's relighting it, at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generation. So he's lighting it every, every day at twilight. 1 Samuel 3, verses 2 and 4 says, And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So what, what I'm getting at is, there's a time when the oil would run out. Eventually, the oil would run out in the, in the nighttime. And that's, we're given, you know, we're being told that that's when this time when the Lord spoke to uh, Eli there in 1 Samuel. Well, again, you think about the Holy Spirit. Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit would ascend and descend on people. You read in the book of Judges, the Holy Spirit, you read it where the Holy Spirit descended on one of the judges and they did this mighty deliverance. Samson was one of them, uh, all, Deborah, all these different uh, judges of Israel. The Holy Spirit would ascend on them or descend on them, I guess. Um, but we read of where he would also depart from people in the Old Testament. King Saul, perfect example. The Holy Spirit departed from King Saul. 
In fact, David in his psalm, Psalm 51 verse 11 says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me because that was a real fear under the old covenant that the Spirit would depart from a person. Now what's interesting in Zechariah, he has a vision of a lampstand in the temple with two olive trees on either side of the lampstand with tubes running directly into the lampstand. It's a prophetic vision that Zechariah has, but the, the vision, what it, what's meant to portray is that there's a constant flow going into those candlesticks. In other words, it's never going to run out. And under the new covenant, that's your and my situation. If you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is a sign and a seal of our salvation. It's a guarantee. It's a deposit that God puts in your heart. A deposit that's... So the Holy Spirit never departs from you or I. However, however, Paul said this in Ephesians 4 verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So evidently, believers can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. So we can grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit, and yet the Spirit doesn't depart from us. Well, how do you and I grieve the Spirit? It's when our old nature, also known as the old man, also known as the flesh, when that's back on the throne in our hearts. When we are driven by our flesh rather than being led by our spirit. That's when we grieve the Holy Spirit. That's, if you're a born-again believer, that's when you grieve the spirit that dwells within you. Yes, it happens to believers. We grieve the spirit from time to time when our flesh takes control and we're no longer being led by the spirit. And that's what I believe the baptism or the filling, whatever you want to call it, the Holy Spirit is. It's a renewed surrendering to the Holy Spirit in our lives, asking the Holy Spirit to fill us anew, afresh. How does that happen? It's really simple. You have to sit there and come to a, some special meeting and you got to, you know, just really pray hard. No, no, no. You just ask for it. It's that simple. Let me read this to you. Luke chapter 11, verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's just like salvation. You ask in faith and you receive by faith. It's the same. Now, what's interesting about this oil, it says it was to be pure and pressed. And that word in the Hebrew means beaten. That oil was to be beaten because that's, that's how you got the extracted the oil from the olives. You had to just pound on that olive, crush it, press it till the, till the olive oil came out. And the more you press, and, you know, that the purer the oil is. What's fascinating is Jesus before he was crucified, spent the evening praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that word Gethsemane means olive press. It was probably by an olive orchard where they actually pressed the olives to, to uh, make olive oil. 
It was a place of pressing, of beating, and suffering. Jesus Christ suffered for you and I. He was pressed. He was squeezed for you and I. Nobody likes suffering. I don't like suffering. Do you like suffering? Anybody here like suffering? No hands are coming up. That's interesting. Nobody likes suffering, but guess what? It's part of the believer's life. It's part of the, whether you like it or not, it's part of the believer's life. God uses suffering. Suffering produces things in the believer's life. One of the things that I, think, that I, that I see over and over and over again is it gives a person depth of character. You, you talk to someone, you know, that hasn't gone through certain suffering and, you know, there's a, there's a shallowness there. But when a person's gone through something, you can, there's just a depth that, that just, it's beautiful in the believer's life. It's beautiful when you see that, that depth. It also produces compassion. Because once you've gone through something, you look at somebody else, you go, man, I can relate. Right? You can relate to what they're going through. Compassion with those who suffer in the same manner. Because why? Because we can identify with them. This is what's beautiful about Jesus Christ. We're told in Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You're going through a tough time right now? Jesus knows what you're going through. Maybe I don't. Maybe I can't relate because I haven't gone through the same thing. But Jesus does. Take your needs. Take take whatever your burdens are. Take them to him because he cares for you. He loves you. And all these things that happen in a believer's life, there's there's a purpose behind it. And the purpose is for your good. It's to produce things in your life if you will allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in your heart. Some believers, you know, they, they fight against it. Like it reminds me of when, when the Lord spoke to Saul. He was kicking against the goats. And we do that sometimes. We're always kicking against the Lord. We don't want to suffer. We want, we want everything to be comfortable. I don't want to be stretched. I don't want to be pressed. I don't want to. But that's how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Why don't the worship team come on up and we'll, uh, we'll close here for today.